0: whether racism is more prevalent and toxic within the church than outside the church. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? You know, if it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. Feels like a long time since there's been a Walk the Earth question shared here on the RSS feed via inappropriateconversations.org. This is the Walk the Earth podcast and I haven't recorded since probably February of this year. I don't know whether uh, that period of time was officially pre-coronavirus, in my understanding, based on when that recording session happened. But it was certainly before the isolation related to COVID-19 and everything else that's been going on, in many ways disturbingly, in our society in calendar year 2020. Today I want to come back, though, with a question that is also relevant to some of the things which have made the year 2020 particularly challenging, and that's the question of race. I encountered an article that was published July 17th of this year by Robert P. Jones, CEO and founder of PRRI. PRRI is the Public Religion Research Institute, and they basically do uh, extensive, careful scientific surveys And most of them related to religion writ large, but often is not. That includes Christianity, and sometimes it includes Christianity and politics. It's hard to look at survey information from a Christian perspective and uh, sensitivity to demographics and not hit politics. And when you do, some things become evident to you. And from an article that uh, Robert P. Jones published called Racism Among White Christians is Higher Than Among the Non-Religious, and that's no coincidence. For most of American history, the light-skinned Jesus conjured up by white congregations demanded the preservation of inequality as part of the divine order. I've done this before, where I've brought in a question to walk the earth and spent a lot of time sharing, at some length, the position of the person I either wanted to disagree with or concur with, or spend some time walking alongside in a parallel way. This might be one of the latter examples, because I grew up in what I uh, often call the heart of the heart of the country. And when you're the adjacent to the American South, you know, maybe not in it, but adjacent to it, uh, having spent time in states like uh, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, Texas, places like that, you encounter a fair amount of racism if you're even paying the slightest bit of attention to what is happening around you. So in many ways, some of the things that are being shared by by Dr. Jones here are things which I can, you know, attest to from my own eyewitness experience. But first, let me let Jones share his perspective. And this is referring, of course, directly to the research that he and his organization do. Surveys conducted by PRRI in 2018 found that white Christians, including evangelical Protestants, mainline Protestants, and Catholics, are nearly twice as likely as religiously unaffiliated whites to say the killings of black men by police are isolated incidents rather than part of a pattern of how police treat African Americans. And white Christians are about 30 percentage points more likely to say that monuments to Confederate soldiers are symbols of Southern pride rather than symbols of racism. White Christians are also about 20 percentage points more likely to disagree with this statement. Generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for blacks to work their way out of the lower class. So, in the course of asking questions like this and getting survey answers back, uh, Jones says he he thought that he had the ability to create a racism index, a measure consisting of 15 questions, including the three that I kind of just mentioned, designed to get beyond personal biases and include perceptions of structural injustice. I want to share those findings, but I also want to respond to the blowback against them. So, uh, the point that I think that um, Jones makes from studying the data and writing this article is that there's a legacy, an unholy union, if you will, that still lives in the DNA of white Christianity today, and not just among white evangelical Protestants in the South. Moreover, These statistical models refute the assertion that attending church makes white Christians less racist. There was an argument that maybe his survey results were getting the the lapsed Catholics and not the real Catholics, just for one example. But he says this, Among white evangelicals, in fact, the opposite is true. The relationship between holding racist views and white Christian identity is actually stronger among more frequent church attenders, than among less frequent church attenders. What exactly are we to do with that? Well, it may seem obvious to mainstream white Christians today that slavery, segregation, and overt declarations of white supremacy are antithetical to the teachings of Jesus, such a conviction is, in fact, a recent development for most white American Christians and churches, both Protestant and Catholic. The unsettling truth is that for nearly all of American history, The light-skinned Jesus conjured up by most white congregations was not merely indifferent to the status quo of racial inequality, he demanded its defense and preservation as part of the natural, divinely ordained order of things. I recently watched a movie on uh, Amazon Prime. It may also be available on YouTube, I'm not sure about that, but it's called White Savior. And for a relatively short film, a documentary that's barely more than an hour long, There's a ton of information packed in there. As I recall from watching it the second time to prepare for this recording, it has something like seven chapters. So you're dealing with segments, which are five to 10 minutes a piece, maybe closer to 10 on average. But in these segments, it creates the arguments of kind of how we got here, including things that had dawned on me that I never really knew. I have attended from time to time, uh, African Methodist Episcopal church services, um, my typical uh, consumption of, of religious material, uh, the amount of times in one week for the sake of argument, that I hear something that might be called a religious talk or a message or a sermon might potentially surprise a lot of people. See, I'm not one of those folks who believes that being unable to attend a church in person is some sort of religious persecution or that, you know, sinister forces in the United States government are attacking my faith by suggesting that we might want to avoid gathering in large groups in order to keep everyone safe. I kind of have the opposite perspective because I consume things which, again, I think your average person would call either religious or perhaps a sermon via podcasts on a regular basis and it was not that odd for me who has I'm you know, the kind of person who's gone online and and been part of a live broadcast streaming broadcast podcast event and been in the chat room interacting with the people who had also come to be part of the show so to speak it wasn't that big of a jump to say okay well now every week for as long as it takes we're going to continue to get together as a congregation at the church that I've joined, and we're going to do this virtually. We're going to do it not unlike a live streaming podcast might be done, and, and to such a degree, in fact, that the interactions in the chat room feel different in terms of the substance of the conversation, but not in the form of the format. If I were to go online and, and capture and highlight the bits of scripture that were being emphasized in a sermon and paste those in so that people who maybe weren't catching the scripture references could see them in a chat room i don't think that's terribly different from posting a meme or a song reference or a movie clip to make fun or participate jovially in an online conversation related to a comedy podcast for example putting something into the chat room is is a very similar vibe and the church, at least for my experience, has gone very social media kind of here lately, in the sense that I'm still listening to at least four to probably ten podcasts a week that would be religious in nature. Some as short as a minute. The Max Licato podcast is just short as a minute, and you know, for people who followed inappropriate conversations, Max Licato is one of those pastors, and I would say a pastor who you know has some legitimate you know credentials. In evangelical Christianity, I'm not sure uh, whether that translates into uh, the religious right at all, or even necessarily truly uniquely conservative evangelical Christianity, but he's got credibility. I named him as a different drummer in an Inappropriate Conversations episode a few years ago. Inappropriate Conversations number 140. I think I called it Gathering Round the Campfire. And Max Locato was the different drummer for that episode, which would have probably come out early early March 2014, possibly late february i viewed it as sort of a two-part series about uh, small group formation and things that you know kind of maybe don't work right now if uh, your religious outreach if your ministry includes getting together with a group of 30 to 60 people and doing sort of retreats and you know that whole gathering around the campfire that whole notion of church camp well i'm Without having kids that age anymore, I'm not 100% sure, but I'd be shocked if church camps happened this summer at all. And I would certainly question the wisdom of anybody who tried to conduct a church camp as if nothing was different in this era of COVID-19. So um, Max Lucano has one-minute podcasts that he puts out Monday through Friday. So there's five, but it may be only five minutes worth, but it's it's still five podcasts. There's a similar um, thought for the day BBC Radio 4 podcast, which covers a kind of a broad interfaith ministries perspective where you never know day to day whether that three or four minute podcast is going to be coming with a message from Hinduism or Sikhism or Islam or Christianity. But, you know, to be honest with you, from a cultural perspective, the majority of things that would come to us out of the United Kingdom probably going to be uh, Christian or at the very least Christian aware I mean, England is one of those nations which has its own denomination. I mean, the Church of England, the original Episcopal Church, is very, very English. Let's just put it that way. In addition to consuming podcasts that way, and from time to time, seeking out more uh, interview-type shows, where if if somebody like um, Sarah Bessie, another recent different drummer, is being interviewed on a podcast like the Relevant Podcast, I'll be interested in those not on an every weekly basis, just because I follow that podcast, religiously, pun intended, because I don't, but more who the guest is, whether it's somebody that I know and trust, or somebody I want to learn more about to determine if I want to learn more from them, having evaluated them by learning about them first. So there's that podcast consumption. But, you know, one of our family friends is uh, a pastor of an African Methodist Episcopal church uh, back in the state where we went to to college. And because of the time zone difference, it's not long after uh, the online church that that my wife and I participate in is done that she is able to stream via her phone her friend's message. And it's interesting because you've got that difference, that dichotomy between the emphasis of the uh, white Protestant G- Christian church, generally white, we'll get to that in a second. And the predominantly African American church, in terms of even the use of scripture or the focus of scripture in the message. Uh, generally speaking, it's not unusual for if I were guessing, if I were gonna if I were gonna wager a little bit, I'd say, well, you know, odds are pretty high that the church I go to is going to have a New Testament element in scripture readings. That even if there's a scripture reading from from Genesis or Leviticus on this particular morning, there's also going to be one from the Gospels to go with it. And I find that in uh, in the African church tradition, you're just as likely to find passages from the latter part of Genesis or Exodus. And it's possible that the emphasis there and the difference that maybe makes a difference is that I could make an argument in answering this question on Walk the Earth that to some degree... The overriding themes behind the way scripture is used in what we might call white churches is chosenness, is uh, the fact that we are part of the end group and that we've been sent out and that we are in Christ in that manner. And that a lot of times it's not unusual to find the message in the, in the African-American congregation to be one of deliverance. And that's a difference that kind of makes a difference. One of the things that was really stark for me watching the documentary White Savior was that I realized that despite the fact that I've paid attention to African Methodist Episcopal churches during my lifetime, I didn't know how the denomination formed. And it's part of that documentary that at a moment of a black person sitting in, quote unquote, the wrong part of the pews in that church was removed forcibly from the church by the ushers. And that led to a walkout where every member or well, every attender of this white church, a white church where a suggestion had been made that they create a separate black church and have under the same banner and the heading of that denomination of two different churches, they were in essence forced to go out and form their own church and later form their own denomination because... It occurred to a lot of the black people who attended that particular church on a regular basis that they weren't being included, they were simply being tolerated, and something as simple as sitting on the wrong pew would be a complete deal-breaker for the people who, I guess you might say, felt like they owned that particular church from a white lay leadership perspective. Here is how Jones describes it in his article. Consider the cultural context in which American Christianity, both Protestant and Catholic, was born. In the 18th and 19th centuries, as Protestant churches were springing up in the newly settled territories after Native American populations were forcibly removed, it was common practice, observed, for example, at the Baptist church that was a progenitor of, of Jones's own parents' church in Macon, Georgia, for slaveholding whites to take enslaved people to church with them. The practice had it that whites sat in the front while enslaved blacks sat in the back or in specially constructed galleries above. In the late 18th century Maryland, one-fifth of those included in a Catholic consensus were enslaved people owned by white Catholics or white Catholic institutions. And as late as the 1940s, urban Catholic parishes in major cities such as New York still required black members to sit in the back pews and approach the altar last, To receive the bread and wine of the Eucharist. Moreover, the content of what was preached confirmed that white supremacy was a part of the Christian worldview. Sermons, by necessity, tended to be light on the themes of freedom and liberation in Exodus, for example, and heavy on the mandates of obedience and being content in one's social station from the New Testament writings of Paul. The plain testimony of history. Jones concludes in his last couple of paragraphs, is that alongside what good we white Christians have done, white Christian theology and the institutions have also declared the blessings of God on the enslavement of millions of African Americans, the construction of a brutal system of racial segregation enforced by law and lynchings, the resistance to the civil rights movement and the mass incarceration of millions of African Americans— When the patterns in the current public opinion data are seen in this light, they seem unsurprising and, indeed, inevitable. As monuments to white supremacy are falling across America, a great cloud of witnesses is gathering. Our fellow African American citizens, and indeed the entire country, are waiting to see whether we, white Christians, can finally find the humility and courage and love to face the truth. About our long relationship with white supremacy and to dismantle the Christian worldview we built to justify it. Robert P. Jones, founder and CEO of PRRI and the author of the book, White Too Long The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. I don't want to undersell, despite having quoted at some length, the service that the Public Religion Research Institute has performed simply by asking questions in a way that get people to honestly answer and tabulating that data in such a manner that it's statistically relevant to draw conclusions from it and to go back to looking kind of straight in the face our question today on Walk the Earth of whether racism is more prevalent and toxic within rather than outside the church. The argument from the data suggests that it is absolutely more prevalent within rather than outside the church And I guess my question, or the place I'd like to emphasize, because I take the beginning of this as a given, game, set, match, uh, Jones's argument prevails. But is it toxic? And to what degree can I say yes to both sides of this question that racism within the church is both more prevalent and more toxic than it is outside of the church? And I guess the argument from toxicity that I think I would make is one of honesty and transparency there is something somewhat ironically comforting about someone who just flat out owns their racism you know what you're looking at you know what you're dealing with and maybe it's more venomous more poisonous depending on which way you look at it but it's not hidden or disguised it's like those you know extremely colorful jungle frogs in some parts of i believe south america where the sheer look of that particular kind of frog makes you want to pick it up. But the kind of the iridescent colors, the almost fluorescent colors, um, kind of are a, a hint to those who have studied it that that frog is actually extremely dangerous. It is poisonous to touch. It's toxic. So I think in some ways it's less dangerous to be dealing with somebody who, as I've said it earlier, kind of owns their racism than it is to deal with these sort of hidden and convoluted and overwhelmingly rationalized and justifies forms of exactly the same racism. I cannot justify the argument that even in 1940, but even for hundreds of years before that, that if you're welcoming somebody to be a participating member of your congregation, whatever we mean by member, in Christian fellowship, That they should have to be confined to the balcony, or they'll be forcibly thrown out of the building, if they sit somewhere other than the balcony, based on nothing more than the color of their skin, or their economic relationship to the society. And yet, that's the kind of toxicity that I'm talking about. There's something maybe even more dangerous about that same kind of toxic racial worldview that is wrapped up into a whitewashed Christ and disguised as God's will. I think almost any time I see somebody do something evil and blame God for it, I'm going to view that as far more toxic than, well, almost anything else. Because I come to the Walk the Earth podcast as somebody who is a Christian, has a Christian worldview, has a genuine love for the church, and has, I hope, as much as possible, an accurate understanding of who Jesus is. But if you see the average picture depicted of Christ, whether it be in cartoon caricature form or an extremely carefully made and expensively procured painting, anytime that picture removes the Middle Eastern skin tone from Jesus, it takes efforts to make him less less Jewish uh, in the the movie white savior they refer to him as the norwegian jesus any effort to make jesus more scandinavian than palestinian well that's a huge mistake and it's an intentional choice you can't depict christ in a in a racially non-historical manner by accident i suppose if you're carrying on a tradition that goes back for hundreds of years and you're just imitating the other pictures and paintings you've seen, you could make an argument that you're foolish and ignorant. But it's funny. It's very rare in having a conversation with somebody, especially about contentious issues like race, that the person you're arguing with flees to the, well, I'm just a moron argument. It doesn't work that way. That people are going to be just as careful about guarding how little thought they've put into something that doesn't immediately affect them as they are about their local sports team or their favorite band. It's just the way it is. I'd like to make another reference to a past inappropriate conversations podcast, because I think the argument that I'm going to make is that one of the problems that we're dealing with, and one of the real challenges to coming up with a solution, and maybe that the problem itself poses a solution that we need to consider, is a different drummer named Shane Claiborne. July 8th, 2012, I released Inappropriate Conversations number 94. And just for the sake of argument, I'm going to read the blurb that I wrote all those years ago in introducing this topic, because Shane Claiborne was a custom-made different drummer for the topic. One of those cases where, from an Inappropriate Conversations podcast perspective, did the topic seek, make me go seek a different drummer, or did the different drummer give me the topic? And this is one of those where the two were so fully synthesized that it might be hard to split that particular atom. Here's what I wrote. Giving to charitable organizations is a good idea. It makes a difference. It helps. We must not confuse these types of contributions with missionary work, though. Being in mission is about intervening, and getting involved is not merely a financial offering. The missionary position is local, was the name of that particular Inappropriate Conversations podcast in July of 2012. I'm sure along the way I've told a story that uh, I will now repeat on Walk the Earth, except this time I won't be quoting from Shane Claiborne's um, one of his early books directly. I don't have the paperback sitting in front of me at the point of this recording. But it's enough to sort of explain it because I want to tie this into ways that people who have hidden, you know, racist views, latent racism, who believe and might pass a lie detector test that basically doesn't say they're not racist, but the lie detector results would say that they don't believe they're racists and they're convinced that they're not. But I think there's a racism element here. Claiborne, in his uh, book, Simple Way, goes into an inner city point of Philadelphia and in a church that had been abandoned by the Roman Catholic diocese, was empty and it had at the time been populating with homeless people seeking shelter. Claiborne went in there to interact with those folks and to help protect them against city city and church efforts to evict them. Fair point. And along the way, they formed a different kind of community. A kind of community where, despite the fact that homelessness was still a major issue and in some ways a a characteristic of the group, that they were forming community, taking care of each other, finding ways to to support each other. And this is basically where this concept that Claiborne had of the simple way coming up. And Part of the reason that the ministry was able to be sustaining was from the donations of people. But Clayford in his book said that often is not when he, people hear about the ministry that he was doing and the impact it was making, they want to give him money, but he tried to avoid taking a check from people. What he wanted them to do instead was to come and see firsthand to participate in the ministry in whichever way they could. And if after seeing what they were doing firsthand, they chose to write a check, great. If that check was bigger because of the experience they had, all the better. If it was less because of the experience they had, Claiborne still saw value in that direct contact, that the missionary work needs to be local. It's not, I'm going to write a check and make the problem go away. It's intervening. And the quote that he shared was one that I, I think Kurt Vonnegut has done some some good work with as well it's the quote from jesus about the poor will always be with you and claiborne said that's not exactly the right translation that jesus was saying the poor will always be among you and when he would go speak in wealthy megachurch congregations he would pause there and ask are they among you are the poor among you where are the poor now And his suggestion was that we ought to be doing that outreach. We ought to be intervening. And we ought to be doing what we can to obliterate those distinctions between the suburbs and the inner city. Now, I realize that in 2020, if I use that particular kind of terminology, it's probably going to be a red flag that's going to tap into all sorts of prejudices. But I do it on purpose to help us reconcile and reveal how we respond to things like inner city and suburbs because I want us to be aware of the fact that, frankly, everybody struggles with race because of the dysfunctional society that we've created and our inability to be intentional about bridging those gaps. I shared that quote from Claiborne's book in the church that I attended that we left, the church we left behind that actually gives the name to this podcast of Walk the Earth. We We didn't leave that church because we found a more suitable congregation. We left that church to walk away, and it was always possible we were going to walk away to nothing. that The first decision was, I can't be part of this congregation anymore. That in many ways they had lost their way, and the situation had become toxic. Now, I'm not going to suggest that the toxicity that I was experiencing there was directly related to race. It wasn't. But the fact that it wasn't directly related to race tells a very interesting story. If you're a regular churchgoer, if you're listening to Walk the Earth, not from the curiosity of the outsider looking into a a unique Christian experience. I guess I I could say that about Walk the Earth. But if you're somebody who attends church on a regular basis, you've got your own congregation. And maybe there's questions that I've raised here that the church you attend won't ever answer. So at least it's encouraging that somebody is wrestling with it, and if these questions aren't going to be something that get wrestled with within the four walls of the church you attend, that's one of the beauties of the Internet. It's one of the unique things about podcasting that I so much enjoy. But if you do attend church on a regular basis, whether that be inside a building or, as I've done this summer virtually, look around. Stop and look around. If, if we have people in this country who are paranoid and violent And willing to commit murder because, among other things, they're desperately afraid that white people are about to be a minority in, quote-unquote, our own country. And the hysteria that creates in the hearts of hateful people, to be honest. Well, that suggests that probably, if we are 20, 30, 40 years away from from that um, fear-mongering claim to be factually true, and I believe that is exactly right, We are heading in the direction of being a truly multicultural society in every sense of the word, but it means that probably at least 40% of our society today is what could be described as non-Caucasian, not white. Look around your church. Look at the people that you are metaphorically or otherwise rubbing elbows with on a regular basis and ask yourself, is your congregation reflecting the society that Jesus has called you to go and do ministry within And by society, I mean society bigger than just a couple of wealthy neighborhoods that surround the building that you call your church. I mean, is your congregation 40% non-white? Congratulations to you, if you can answer that question with a yes. When we walked away from one congregation and walked into another, one of the deciding factors was that that congregation we walked into was something along the lines of 10% non-white, but I don't think I can make that claim right now. As I look on a computer screen at the variety of faces that I'm seeing, the percentage has shrunk. And maybe it's much smaller because when you're not getting together to sing, you lose the engagement of people who are in the choir. And that's a, that's a, piece, of, that's a piece of our racial diversity in this particular congregation, which we don't see much of right now. Because even if we were figuring out a way to have a socially distanced gathering in person, that kind of singing is viewed as one of the more dangerous activities that you can do. And that even with a mask on, it's communication that poses a greater risk, perhaps, than merely talking would. So even in my own congregation, I've seen this number tilt in the opposite direction over time. And I'm guessing that that's true generally. Here's my concern. When I shared that maybe the most important thing wasn't necessarily, as a church, going out and doing outreach into the to wealthier neighborhoods that were within a very short driving distance of where that church was located, but that we should instead invest our time and energy working in mission, driving further away, going to places where the need was even greater, due to economic disadvantage. And maybe that economic dis- disadvantage was disproportionately toward You know, people of color. I think that's probably a factual statement that anybody would have just taken for granted. If I had said that out loud, it wouldn't have gotten me an argument because, for one thing, it was probably something that could easily be proven to be true. The answer I got back, though, from the finance chairman was that he was not at all happy, meaning he was really, really unhappy, but he was a southern gentleman. And even though we don't, my wife and I don't live in the south, um, this was somebody who was a transplant. Alabama, Mississippi, someplace like that. Very nice man, but a Southern gentleman such that if he was uh, saying that he wasn't necessarily happy, that was the equivalent of him saying that he was absolutely livid. That I would suggest that instead of our church going where the money is, he was after all the finance chairman at the time, that we were going into a place where the money wasn't. That he saw it as a double negative. Instead of adding to the population of our church with people who could contribute Financially to the ministry of the church, we were spending our time going to places, we were interacting with people who were likely to diminish the available capital and funds of the church because the church was going to inevitably be inspired to address their needs. When he heard Shane Claiborne's story, he heard people writing big checks to somebody who's outside the church, you know, living in an abandoned building, homeless in the inner city, and he wasn't sure that was the best use of our seed money. Now, I'm not accusing this person of being racist. But what I am saying is that whether he knew it or not, whether he could pass that lie detector test I mentioned earlier or not, race played a role. And racism, it's not like the church we attended, over and above its you know, white homogeny, didn't have issues where race was a factor. The last pastor at that church before we left... With, who had, frankly, nothing to do with our decision to leave, pulled me aside once when I was working on the Human Relations Department of the church, the Staff Parish Relations Committee is what you often hear it called in the Wesleyan tradition. And I was part of that. We were the HR group. Uh, there to help staff when staff had trouble, uh, conduct performance reviews, decide what raises would be, all that sort of stuff, the HR stuff. And he pulled me aside and said that somebody in the church uh, had told him that while they appreciated that he was bringing people who weren't part of the congregation into the church to conduct weddings and that he was even okay with this pastor conducting weddings on behalf of people who had reached out to him or people that he had run into in ministry and conducting weddings in other churches and in those other folks churches that this person wanted to make it really clear that they were not going to be all at all happy if he conducted an interracial church wedding ceremony inside our building, I honestly don't know if this story is true, because I think you've got to gauge an anonymous story in a very different way. It could be that a racist member of our congregation who was not overtly racist, therefore I had no idea who it was, had approached this new, relatively young pastor with this sort of insidious suggestion that this person was going to stop giving to the church or even stop attending the church. If this pastor so much as even entertained the idea of conducting a wedding ceremony where a black man married a white woman or a black woman married a white man, that that was the deal breaker. It's also equally possible that this was a trial balloon, that this was not a verbatim actual conversation that happened in the hallways of the church that I'd attended for probably 13, 14 years at that point in time. But instead This reflected maybe the heart of somebody else in the church, maybe a member of the staff who wanted to see if the staff parish relations committee would back him or her up on that sort of racial exclusion. That there'd been messages given from the pulpit, for example, about the kinds of people that could not just automatically get an agreement to be married in lawful matrimonial ceremonies, by a Christian pastor if they were, you know, unmarried and living together or had had a child out of wedlock or what have you. And I just don't know. But in the back of my mind, you wonder, was that list of people that should not be allowed to just automatically get married without a lot, a lot, a lot of counseling bigger than just people who had committed what this pastor perceived as the sexual sins? I mean, clearly this was a pastor who was never, ever going to, you know, conduct a gay wedding. But was this a pastor? or a former pastor, telling the members of this church that they were hoping we would go along with the idea of not allowing interracial marriages to be conducted, even if the people who were being married weren't members of the church and were simply taking advantage of the location and decor of our building. Hard to say. But it does reveal certain problems. Let me go back to this concept that one of the ways you know you've got an issue with kind of the overriding message the vibe even of white christianity and as jones noted in his article it's not just you know southern evangelicals it's also mainline protestants and catholics too it's represented throughout the data that often what you see is white christians for want of a better word skipping the step of bondage and slavery deliverance lamentation all those sorts of things Instead, choosing to lean into this notion of being chosen people, part of the inner circle, disciples or apostles sent out personally by Christ, that that personal relationship doesn't respect, doesn't respect the notion that it's just as true within a broad biblical worldview that there are times of separation, times of bondage, times of hardship, times when the prayers need to be about deliverance? Or is the notion of crying while you're praying in some ways a very harsh lack of decorum that your average white, well, from my experience, Protestant Christian church, but I'm sure it might be the same in your average Catholic church, that we might discourage that sort of thing. You're, you're making a show of things. There was a small group organization that was a multi-denominational. It was a parachurch organization, is how I, I like to describe it. Multiple different congregations coming together to do ministry, and some of it was outreach ministry inside prisons, where, of course, you're going to be interacting and doing ministry with lots of people who are people of color, because one of the problems with systemic racism in our society is that we keep finding new and creative ways to lock non-white people up. If we can't bind them in slavery, we'll isolate them in a part of town and terrorize them with the Klan. If that doesn't work, then we will find reasons to arrest them and put them in prison. We, we keep locking people up. So if you do prison ministry, you know you're going to be going and doing outreach and interacting very directly with a lot of people of color. The other side of that group was equipping church members. So uh, kind of doing a short course in Christianity, for want of a better word, by doing a deep dive into the faith with people from a variety of congregations, sending them out to be more equipped to be a voice of leadership within those congregations. And these small group activities, because usually you had something like 30 or 40 team members participating with maybe 50, 60, 70 invited guests, that you're talking about roughly 100 people at a time, too large of a gathering to be sustainable right now, while the nation is trying and often is not failing to figure out how to combat an extremely contagious disease. But back when I was a part of some of those groups, it was a vibrant, meaningful organization, and it wasn't at all unusual to be engaging either in worship with somebody who was an invited guest or on a team side-by-side with somebody who was Native American and Christian, African American and Christian, so forth and so on. And from that, you would return to your congregation, and often with... A little bit more enthusiasm, with a broader perspective, with a, just a more charismatic worldview—for one of a better way of putting it—than an otherwise uh, button-up-the-top button-straighten-up-that-tie mainline denomination would be willing to accept. When you think about going as a guest to an African American church, which you know, we did as part of the Walk the Earth process, we made sure that that was an included element. And, of course, we have for many, many years, because we have you know, friends of multiple races, including friends who not only attend African Methodist Episcopal churches, but lead them. So, when you're in one of those churches, one of the first thing you notice is that the sermon, or at least that time of sermon, feels like it has a lot of dialogue in it. And I'm not suggesting that in any way this characteristic is racial to one degree or another. It's not impossible to find uh, extremely evangelical, charismatic churches where you see some of this too. But one of the defining characteristics I see different is that when a minister is giving a sermon in a black church, you hear a lot of, tell it, brother, preach it, amen, that the congregation has things to say that they're not afraid to say. And I would bet you that in your average United Methodist church, you could get escorted out of the building by the usher if you did that too much, too many weeks in a row, in the congregation where there's sort of an unwritten expectation that you're going to be sitting quietly and taking it all in. This is among the many differences, and I won't go into more now because yeah, I'm trying to keep the podcast to a normal length, even though this is a topic about which I have a great deal of passion. But if you were used to that kind of experience, if you were used to the entire body of Christ worshiping during a time of sermon or message, or for that matter, singing, and you were in, as a visitor, in what I might describe as one of these white Christian churches, where that not only wasn't happening, but you clearly perceived that that kind of behavior wasn't welcome. Well, then, you can begin to get some insights into the persistent segregation in churches today. There can be a racism in the way Christianity operates in America that doesn't involve using racial slurs, or putting a sign up telling people they're not welcome. You can tell people they're not welcome in a myriad of different ways. If and as you are led, please join me in prayer. Lord, when we look around our churches, when we look in our society, we continue to see a lack of harmony. We continue to see that we are not reaching all the nations, and that outreach is far too often limited to people who look just like us and have followed a tradition or an experience similar to ours. Lord, when you said go and make disciples, Jesus, you meant go. Go to places where we otherwise might not be. And sometimes that means going and inviting people in. Lord, and sometimes it means going and accepting their hospitality. And Lord, it's too obvious to me too often that we are not able to fully extend appropriate hospitality or even have the right kind of understanding of how to graciously receive that hospitality because of segregation so jesus this is not a not a conversation or a podcast where i pretend to have answers but lord i know that i have the ears to hear the answers that you would provide lord give us wisdom give us insight give us revelation on how to create here on earth the kingdom of heaven you told us was already among us. A kingdom of heaven where people from all backgrounds worship together in harmony because some folks have a voice that I simply can't provide and wouldn't want to imitate. And I also provide a tone that they also wouldn't want to imitate. And it's only when your entire choir gets together that it will sound like what you meant. By the kingdom of heaven. So Lord Jesus in your holy name I pray hasten that day Lord. Please hasten that day. Amen. What happened this morning man I agree it was peculiar but water into wine all shapes and sizes Vincent. You not talk to me that way man. If my answers frighten you Vincent then you should cease asking scary questions. Often, after the theme music, I would introduce the next topic. The next question for Walk the Earth. And I don't believe I have that next question in mind. It will come to me perhaps even with the current events that brought this question. But I do know that I've been participating in summer preparations for the launch of an additional podcast. It's not my podcast personally, like the shows that appear at www.inappropriateconversations.org No, this is a different website. It will be Um, Harmony Springs Gives Voice. I'll have more detail about that as it gets closer to the launch, but the uh, Harmony Springs Church is anticipating this will happen in the month of September, probably with the release of three simultaneous podcasts, and the website will be Voice.com. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at Pride48.com